Hey, Critical Thinkers, welcome to this new episode of Healthy and Awake Podcast, where today we have an exciting interview with Dr. David Gruder. And my brain is still spinning. It was so intellectually stimulating that I'm going to have to go back and listen to it a few more times, really, to soak everything in. And uh, a big thanks to Josh H. on LinkedIn, who connected me with Dr. Gruder. And let me tell you a little bit about some of what we covered on this episode, in this conversation. We talked about really some of the mechanisms through which our minds and even our sense of happiness can be hijacked. You know, we talk a lot about propaganda on this show, and we do talk a little bit about that here. But we also talk about technology and the evolving role of artificial intelligence in our lives. And as an extension of that, we talk about the future of humanity and exploring both an optimistic and cautionary perspective. We talk about what it even means to really find the truth, or not what it means to find the truth, but how to parse the truth, how to parse the information, how to sort everything out so that we can make better decisions. We talked about practical advice for health coaches because you know I'm a board certified health coach and given his background and and his brilliance I wanted to ask his perspective on some advice for health coaches so if you are a health coach I know many of you listen to the show that's at the very end I think you'll really like what he says there but now let me tell you about Dr. David Gruder himself I'm going to read his bio here Dr. David Gruder is the multi best selling 12 award winning recovering psychologist and professional troublemaker, I love it, whose latest project is the Center for Enlightened Self-Sovereignty. He is known internationally for challenging conventionally accepted humanity-harmful beliefs. He equips leaders and influencers in business, government, the helping professions, education, and the media to become the change they want to see and to master their capacity to catalyze those changes in their chosen spheres of influence. So really, we, we talk for about an hour. It's extremely enlightening. So without further ado, here we go. Dr. David Gruder, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. I, I've looked into you and, and you do some great work. And so maybe a good place to start is, if you don't mind, telling the audience a bit about what you do. Oh. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be with you. And what I do, if I say it in a, in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, is I'm a recovering psychologist and professional troublemaker. I was rightly accused recently of being an iconoclast, meaning that I, uh, I really challenge prevailing beliefs, the, at least the parts of prevailing beliefs that I view as harmful to individuals and, and humanity. And I'm the, these days, the director of the Center for Enlightened Self-Sovereignty. I have a long history of, of many leadership and training and consulting roles that I've filled across many different marketplaces in, the, in my career. And now I feel like I'm in the capstone of my career, pulling everything together that I've understood and developed and experienced to have maximal impact on humanity's best future. That's awesome. And I love that you threw the word troublemaker in there too, because I can definitely relate to that. I'm, uh, 
I myself might be considered a troublemaker in the health coaching industry. So I think we're definitely going to get along and see eye to eye on a lot of things here today. And when you and I spoke prior to this conversation, we talked about a, a lot of things. And one of them that really stood out to me was this idea of waking people up. And, you know, we're here on the show, Healthy and Awake podcast. A big part of my mission is to wake people up. But, you know, that kind of means different things to different people. So I am curious, what exactly does waking up mean to you? Mm. Mm. What I understand is that there are prevailing spells. I use the term spells like from fairy tales um, that have people asleep that they need to emerge from, they need to wake up from, if you will, in order to be able to picture their best possible future and humanity's best possible future in order to identify their uh, guided role, their their best role in helping that future emerge, uh, and in order to guide their own self-development and influencer or leader development in order to fulfill that purpose that they have in helping humanity's best future emerge. And so I see that there are societal spells and personal spells that people need to wake up from in order to really elevate into the, our best possible future. What would be the difference between societal spells and personal spells? Mm. I love that you asked that. So. Societal spells are what I view as prevailing propaganda in the world that infects large numbers of people. And personal spells have to do with our own unfinished business, our own undigested life experiences that a lot of people refer to as unresolved trauma, and rightly so, uh, that put us in survival mode rather than thrival mode personally. Hmm. Okay. So personal spells could come from something like trauma and and things like that. Things that we as individuals have to contend with, but it does seem like societal spells or being able to hypnotize a population, the mechanisms I, I think would be slightly different there. So what would need to be the case for a society to be cast a spell successfully like that? Mm. Well. I think the best way that I can describe that is through the, the language that the father of modern public relations coined a hundred years ago. Uh, his name was Edward Bernays, and I didn't call him the father of modern public relations. Uh, relations. That's how he's known or was known. He died in the 1990s. And uh, he, he coined a term called manufactured consent. And that's his term for the propaganda method that that manipulates people into supporting products, services, causes, or candidates while thinking they're doing that out of their own free will. And the mechanisms, the, the tactics that he developed that have been widely adopted across the political spectrum across the business spectrum, across the marketing and advertising spectrum, thank God, not everybody, but widely adopted, 
uh, have installed in society some real delusional thinking about happiness, health, prosperity, patriotism, and problem solving. Edward Bernays. I never heard of that guy before. Ah, that's a, that's of course a, a joke. I, I talk about Edward oh. Bernays all the time, and I know when when you and I spoke, I thought Edward, you said that. To me. Yeah, I brought up his name a, a few times. I talk about that dude all the time. Um, you know, with manufacturing consent, I, I know Edward Bernays has talked about that, but another name that comes to mind is Noam Chomsky. Yes, and I, I've read a great deal of of Edward Bernays, but to be honest, not as much of Noam Chomsky. And I know nowadays with a lot of the people who do talk about edward bernays uh noam chomsky kind of gets a bad rap and uh i just started rereading his book manufacturing consent but do you have any thoughts on noam chomsky in this arena too well i think he's really been marvelous at keeping the candle lit in terms of helping the public learn or not forget about the power of propaganda to manipulate their choice making while they're thinking they're using their own free will to make choices. So I think he's been a really influential voice in keeping that awareness going. Yeah, definitely. And and that's certainly a net positive for society to be talking about these things because propaganda or or as you put it like casting a spell the spells aren't as effective if you realize that they're being cast propaganda is very much like a magic trick where once you see how the trick is done it doesn't have the same impact but you also brought up happiness and i think that's very important to talk about on this topic because you know just thinking about it logically how can somebody be happy if their mind is kind of hijacked with spells and attempts at hypnotizing people and propaganda and all these things. So where does happiness factor into all this? Well, they, they can be under delusions of what happiness is. And I, I'll describe that in a second. If it's okay with you first, I'd like to unpack what I think are the three steps of breaking free from a spell. You yep. mentioned the first one, which is recognizing that we've been under one. The second ingredient is once we're recognizing that we've been under one is to understand its anatomy, to understand how that spell works well enough to recognize when spell casting is being attempted. And the third step is having an alternative to the spell that's far more compelling to a person than the spell is. And that's when people become inoculated to being manipulated by spells. So that's the three-step process that I see as crucial in becoming immune to spell casting. Uh, with that, anything you want to say about that before I get on to the, the happiness question? Actually, yeah. Uh, so I do want to address real quick this language of spells, because I know a lot of my audience is hyper-skeptical, and they might hear that word spells and and it might seem easy to dismiss, but when you think about it, I, I think a perfect example of this is you drinking the Kool-Aid. You know, the people in that event literally drank Kool-Aid to kill themselves. That is not at all logical behavior. That's not something that if you were to ask anybody, hey, do you want to drink poison Kool-Aid? Nobody would say yes to that. And it's only really 
under something like a spell where that can become more of a reality where people might be susceptible to doing things that go against their own logic and, and humanity to drink poison. So I that term spells definitely does resonate with me. So I, I did want to bring that up. But I also love the other word that you used, which is inoculation against this sort of thing. Uh, another person who talks about uh, similar ideas is Dr. Gad Saad, who wrote the book uh, Parasite, uh, Parasitic Mind. And, and he you know, really describes how you can be inoculated and, and almost like a vaccine against bad ideas, which is so important today in this landscape of fifth generation warfare, of, of literal attacks on our mind with information. These are um, the vaccines we really need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're not going to get them from Pfizer. I could tell you that. <laughs> right. um, but back into happiness. So where does happiness fit into all this? Mm. Well, the way happiness fits into this is that happiness was rewritten in the 1950s. Uh, the the uh, challenge at the end of World War II was uh, was that at least in the United States, the president at that time, when World War II ended, Harry Truman, he saw that the economy had recovered from the Great Depression on a wartime footing. In other words, it was a war economy that helped the United States and other places in the world recover from the Great Depression. And he didn't want that. Truman had his problems, so I'm not trying to make him into some kind of God, but he did understand, you know, credit where credit's due. He understood that it wasn't healthy for a society to have an economy dependent on war. And so he wanted a way to keep the economy growing in a peacetime oriented manner. He also wanted to minimize the chances that what happened in Nazi Germany could happen here in terms of the takeover in Nazi Germany of, of the Nazis through propaganda mechanisms that were adopted by Herr Josef Goebbels, the Nazi minister of propaganda, because he had read all of the published works of Edward Bernays, an American. Wow. I didn't know that. Yes. And, and so Truman wanted to accomplish two things. He wanted to keep the economy growing in peacetime and to minimize the chances that the that the stuff that had hijacked Germany into Nazism couldn't happen or had a minimum chance of happening here in the States. So he assembled a group of business people and politicians and charged them with the job of figuring out how to accomplish those two objectives. What they came up with is what we know as the American dream. The American dream, 1950s style, redefined happiness from the original version of the pursuit of happiness that's embedded in the United States Constitution and Declaration of Independence. And so happiness got redefined as excessive consumerism. Now, nothing wrong, as far as I'm concerned, with enjoying things and adventures and stuff like that. Uh, but when we define happiness through excessive consumerism, everything gets derailed. And instead of 
freedom and uh, personal freedom and, and social responsibility, uh, the common good in, in constitution languaging being the formula for the pursuit of happiness in the 1950s delusion of the American dream, freedom got replaced with conformity to a specific version of a lifestyle that we were supposed to live. You know, the, the house with the bike picket fence and the one point day children, I'm being a little facetious there and, uh, the latest consumer appliances and the vacations and all of the stuff. And, uh, and, uh, common good social responsibility got reframed as overwork because in order to afford the excessive consumerism lifestyle, we had to be convinced to uh, the breadwinners had to be convinced to work in jobs that they didn't necessarily love longer and longer hours to climb a corporate ladder in a company whose values they didn't necessarily like in order to bring enough money home to support their family in living that 1950s version of the American dream. And it turns out that they, uh, most people couldn't succeed at bringing home enough money, no matter how many hours they worked and no matter how much they climbed the corporate ladder. And that resulted in an explosion in consumer debt by the late fifties and early sixties that had never been seen before because of the invention of credit cards. So this American dream, 1950s style installed a delusion of happiness based on ex excessive consumerism, financial greed, scarcity, and addiction to power and control. And when we use those criteria, to define happiness, we're way off base, but that's a prevailing spell. On that note, we're going to take a word from our sponsors. You guys definitely want to buy this stuff. I'm just kidding. That was a perfect opportunity there for a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's crazy how ideas can really shape our worldview. This idea of the American dream, which, as you said, has been manufactured. And one of my heroes, George Carlin, most famously said, the Ameri it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. And it really does drive a lot of people to do things that they don't want to do. And sometimes just the way our environment is set up, it's kind of like a trap that, you know, sometimes whether we like it or not, we have to do things we want to do. But it, it does, if you could go a little more into what would be the not manufactured version of happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that there was a version of happiness, as I was saying earlier, that's embedded in the United States Declaration of Independence and Constitution. And so if you can imagine a triangle and at the top of the triangle at the apex is, and I'm going to use constitution languaging and, and declaration of independence languaging, the pursuit of happiness. And then at the bottom corners of the triangle are two ingredients that combine together to enable the pursuit of happiness to happen by individuals in a society. And those two ingredients are really crucial if you're creating a country. You've got to, uh, you've got to have personal freedom in a free country, an allegedly free country. 
or a country that aspires to be free. You have to value personal freedom and what in the constitution's languaging is called the common good that we might call social responsibility today. And I'm talking about authentic social responsibility, not the hijacking of that notion either. And so the, in the original formula for the pursuit of happiness, we combined personal freedom and social responsibility. We don't have a term for that in the English language. So when the particular book of mine that's on the restoration of integrity came out in 2008, I coined a term because I couldn't find one in the English language. And I call it free responsibility, the blending of freedom and responsibility. Uh, um, because, you know, freedom without responsibility is narcissism and responsibility without freedom is tyranny. It's got to be both. And the founders understood that. So that's, that's one crucial way of understanding happiness is that blending of personal freedom and the common good. If we add on top of that a sense of purpose and an alignment with what I consider to be our three core drives as human beings, then if we, and, and if we add on top of that a sense of being connected with something wiser and larger than us as seemingly separated egos, then we get a full formula for authentic happiness that blows the 1950s delusion of happiness out of the water. Hmm. Happiness is such a complex subject, and I, I really resonate with everything you just said, especially purpose. Purpose is, is so important, and a lot of people do find happiness through purpose. But I've heard uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson say that happiness almost like the opposite happiness is not very important that you should put purpose first and if you're lucky then you'll find happiness and and maybe i'm misstating that a little bit but that that was my takeaway and i don't know do you have any thoughts on that you know what really makes happiness important <laughs> well you know if i if we look at happiness as an outcome rather than a choice, then I think the, this seeming separation or this, this notion of um, purpose is more important than happiness goes out the window. That, uh, that, of course, the choice starts with a choice to arrive at happiness, but then what happens from there is this journey to build the ingredients that result in an outcome called happiness. And I believe that happiness is actually built into our basic wiring. And this goes back to what I just, I mentioned in passing a moment ago that I'll now unpack called our three core drives. We see three drives in the youngest of children and that's why we know that they're, that they're core drives in us. We have the drive to be who we truly are. That's authenticity. The, the version of that that I like to say to explain that in young children is parents are hoping that their, their young child, when they start speaking, their first word is going to be mommy or daddy. And 
much to their chagrin, their child's first word oftentimes is no. Well, that's authenticity. That's that's a sense of of being who we truly are. The second core drive is our drive to bond with others. That's our drive for connection. And we know that in the youngest of children, if they have severe connection deficits, if they're not connected with in a severe kind of way, they either literally die or they don't literally die, but they develop profound extreme bonding disorders like sociopathy, psychopathy, borderline personality disorder, toxic narcissism, things like that. So we know that that we have this drive to bond with others. And then our third core drive is the drive to influence the world around us, which we also see in the youngest of children, where they're getting their hands into all kinds of stuff that sometimes they shouldn't get their hands into in order to see how they can influence the things around them. So when we understand happiness as living in integrity with our drive for authenticity, our drive for connection, and our drive for impact, then we have a functional way of understanding happiness that frees us from the delusion that happiness means excessive consumerism. This brings up an interesting question about technology. At least that's my take, because I, I wrote down these three things that you mentioned, drive, uh, drive of, of who we are, Yep. Uh, the drive of being bonded with others and the drive of impact and, and influencing others. All those things are greatly impacted by technology. So you have identity crisis. People don't even know what gender they are nowadays. You have bonding with others. You know, people feel more isolated than ever. People are taking antidepressants because they, they're so depressed and they feel alone. And even influencing others and having an impact, I'm, I've been censored. I know a lot of people that I talk to have been censored. The digital landscape makes it so that maybe you can't say the things that you want to say. So I guess that leads to the question, do you think true happiness is really possible with the way that technology is in the world today? Oh, yes, it's very much possible. However, it, it's not going to be possible if we don't understand the mechanisms that are being used to hijack our happiness and our freedom. And so, uh, you know, there, you're probably aware of a documentary that came out in the late 20 teens, uh, called the, uh, social dilemma, uh, which is a great documentary that, that unpacks how social media and, uh, and, uh, search engine algorithms are structured to put in front of each individual what the algorithm the algorithm thinks that individual believes and is aligned with and is interested in and what that creates is what they call and i think rightly so information bubbles where we're being this kind of closed feedback loop where we're being hit up with stuff that reinforces existing beliefs in us and reinforces those existing beliefs to the point where we think that's what's true and everything that's other than that is a lie. So we've got to understand that in order to uh, take responsibility for our freedom. Definitely. And it is a low-hanging fruit. It's so easy to hit that block button or unfriend uh, if you don't agree with something that somebody says and and basically people can create these echo chambers for themselves 
And that's why uh, on my LinkedIn, maybe you've seen, I pride myself with the Healthy and Awake community that I invite as many people who disagree with me or the ideas that I put out there or even other people in the community. It is an open space for people to disagree. And, and I really make a strong effort to do that. Uh, Bless you for that. And, and the Center for Enlightened Self-Sovereignty is the same way. I refer to it as a, a group of like-spirited, like-hearted, diverse-minded people. And the, the other thing I'll interject is that the, the training program of mine that was the most commonly asked for during the COVID drama was my training in how to have difficult discussions about touchy topics in transformative ways. Well, I, I have some ideas about that, but I'd love to hear your approach. Oh, sure. Well, see, what creates polarization politically and, uh, and divisiveness societally is a very simple hmm, dynamic in which people get into arm wrestling mat uh, matches over surface positions and premature solutions. And when I help people learn how to dig underneath their positions and solutions to identify the deep concerns and high intentions that led to those positions and, solution, uh, and solutions, and to have conversations that synergize everyone's deepest concerns and highest intentions, then you get a framework for problem solving that is actually useful. Yeah. And I think a, a big part of that is at least trying to give people the benefit of the doubt, which seems to have disappeared. And I think technology plays a big role in that. You know, on, if I'm talking to someone online, I can see maybe their picture and I see just text. It's so easy for me to assume the worst of that person and interpret in the worst way possible. I see that all the time. Uh, and actually, I love that because, like I said, that it's a perfect opportunity to to extend some kind of olive, olive branch and, and say, hey, you know, I, I know you're disagreeing with me right now, but I, I'm sure we have a lot more in common than it might seem. So maybe we can try to solve some of those problems and, and talk it out. Mm -hmm. But going going back to the tech, I, it, we've established that tech does a lot of damage. It, it can really shape the world, shape our world in a way that can be detrimental. But do you think there's any positive to it, especially when you look at the emerging artificial intelligence technology and, and it's really it's really changing things in quite a drastic way? Yeah, yeah. Well, I look at technology through the metaphor of Star Wars the force. So the force in Star Wars is neutral. It's just an energy that binds all consciousness together that can be harnessed in any number of ways. And then in the Star Wars metaphor, there is the Jedi version of utilizing the force, which is in service of, of love and wisdom and, and higher good. And there is the Sith way, the Darth Vader way, of utilizing the force, which is harmful and divisive and, and totalitarian and, uh, and all of those kinds of things. Technology, I view the exact same way. Technology itself is neutral in the hands of the uninformed or the ill-intended. 
it gets hijacked into a Sith version of technology application. And in the hands of the equivalent of Jedi in the tech world, it gets used to elevate humanity. Hmm. So a double-edged sword there. And I love that description of, of the force because it does make sense. It's a, a neutral tool, but it really depends on, on the implementation, who's using it, how it's used, and, and all those sorts of things. Well, I guess now that we're on this topic, one thing I, I know you've talked about is kind of a fork in the road for humanity with where we're at now. And well, I, I guess I'll leave it there. Can, can you uh, fill me in on the rest? Of course, sure. I think what sparked what I was, uh, what I'm about to say was a follow-on book to a wild best, wildly best-selling book that came out in, I don't remember, something like 2012 or 2014 called Sapiens by a fellow named Yuval Noah Harari. And I'm going to double back to his name in a moment because I think he's gotten hijacked, but really? I, I got a lot of value out of Sapiens. And one of the biggest values that I got from Sapiens was his point, which I think is really well taken, which is that not everything that catches on and becomes popular in the evolution of humanity is necessarily good for humanity. Just because it catches on doesn't necessarily mean it's good. And I thought that was spot on on his part. But what I'm leading up to was his follow-up book to that smash bestseller, Sapiens, which he called Homo Deus. Now, Homo Deus is Latin for human god. And his version of Homo Deus, his version of human god is that we are now, as a species, Homo sapiens is over, and we are now smarter than God. We're smarter than higher love and wisdom. And so we, as, and this is my wording, not his, as seemingly separated egos, can take charge of the world without the assistance of higher love and wisdom. And I'm using those terms, higher love and wisdom, because I'm not talking about a specific religion, and I'm not even necessarily talking about metaphysical spirituality, because there are some people who, uh, whose connection with higher love and wisdom is their connection to nature, right? So there are lots of different terms for that. So that's why I use a generic term like higher love and wisdom. And his version of humanity's future his version of Homo Deus was adopted by the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. And he became the poster child and spokesperson, a spokesperson for the World Economic Forum because the version of the future that he has signed on to is, is the notion that's existed throughout history, but now it's not a local notion, it's a global notion that a small group of people who are smarter than higher love and wisdom are entitled to determine the future for all of humanity. That's one of two versions of the future of humanity. That version of Homo Deus is what I refer to as Homo Machina, human machines in, in translating the Latin into English, where we are being 
manipulated and propagandized into accepting that it's fine for our future to be a hybrid between uh, being a biological organism and being uh, a cyborg, uh, you know, a tech technology organism, and that it's okay for us to become chattel, to become serfs, to uh, be commoditized in service of this small group of uber-wealthy and uber-powerful people who are operating from a profoundly separated notion of uh, of higher love and wisdom, uh, e an ego place, and whose faulty definition of happiness as excessive money and excessive power and control is the boss, is entitled to be the boss of us. So that's homo machina. The other version of humanity's future, if we accept Harari's premise that Homo sapiens is over as our species, and I do accept that premise, the next version of, of Homo Deus, who, human god, instead of the version that says we're smarter than higher love and wisdom, is Homo spiritus, where what our role is, is to be conduits of higher love and wisdom in the physical universe. That's a lot. That's a lot to unpack there. And sorry, no, don't be. You really got me thinking. And and I do want to come back to Yuval Noah Harari because I mean, that's maybe, maybe not because that's a whole rabbit hole that could take a, a whole hour. Um, it could. So, hmm, you know, with with uh, a Homo Deus or a Homo Machina, this idea that we're going to merge with technology, it, it seems like. It's clear to think about, like, we're going to get a Neuralink brain chip in our head or something like that. And that's kind of what leads down that road. Yeah. But when you think of the other one, uh, Homo Spiritus, you said? Yes. What is that? Is like everybody smoking DMT or what does that look like? <laughs> no, it, it's actually <laughs> it's it's actually where people have emerged from the from the societal spells and personal spells that have imprisoned them in order to reclaim what I refer to as spiritual self-sovereignty. And from that sovereign, self-sovereign place to join together to elevate humanity into, if I can speak metaphorically, just shorthand, uh, and we can unpack what this means, but, but treat it metaphorically, mm -hmm. we can co-create heaven on earth. We can create a version of the future of humanity that is uh, is lives at that intersection between personal freedom that's not narcissism and social responsibility that's not tyranny by another name. So in both instances, the one commonality to me seems like a major shift in consciousness. Major shift. Hmm. Okay. Well, are you optimistic like, with all this information? Are you optimistic about the future? I am. I am. I, I firmly believe that a homo spiritus future is what's going to prevail. At the same time, I'm very, very aware of and respectful of the law of wake up calls. And the law of wake-up calls is that when a wake-up call to 
emerge out of spells to uh, emerge into higher consciousness is issued. The choice we have is to press the snooze button, ignore the wake up call or to rise to the wake up call. And that's as true for societies as it is for individuals. So the thing I don't know is how deteriorated society has to become before it reaches the tipping point in which we are going to collectively wake up enough or enough of us will wake up so that we can tip away from homo machina as the next species for humanity into adopting homo spiritus as the next species of humanity. So that's what I don't know. I don't know how bad things are going to have to get in order for the wake-up call to be intense enough for people to finally answer it. So it, it sounds like we need a critical mass on one side or the other to see what really emerges. Yes. Yes. Okay. And that critical mass is not, you know, 50% of the population. Mm -hmm. We know from the field of, of marketing and advertising some gold that has come from that field, because not all of it is hijacked by Bernays. There are ethical marketers out there. Yeah. And we, we do know that early adopters are who start movements. And in order for critical mass in a movement's development to occur, all we need is, depending on the research, anywhere between literally 1% and 20% of the population having shifted. So even if it's only, even if it's as high as 20%, that's mm -hmm. a lot more realistic in terms of early adopters than having to wait until 51% of the population is awake. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if, if it is an either or thing, a black and white sort of thing, because I, you know, I don't necessarily put myself in, in either camp. I'm, I'm an observer. I'm just trying to figure all this out. And, you know, I, I have a spiritual side to me. And at the same time, you know, I use a lot of AI and I, I don't see myself getting a Neuralink brain chip in my head anytime soon, but I do see the appeal. I, I understand it would be really cool to download every language and, and be able to speak it because of a brain chip that I downloaded. And and read every book on the planet instantly by downloading it into my head. I do see the appeal, and I think it's going to be a, I don't know, maybe not a tough decision for people to make. I guess it depends on how the consent is manufactured, but I don't know. It's the consciousness through which the, the AI is utilized. I have tons of AI software. I use AI, too. Uh, I I became so excited about AI that a while back I became a certified prompts engineer. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am not trying to take a stand against artificial intelligence. I'm taking a stand against letting artificial intelligence become the boss of us rather than us as self-sovereign beings, utilizing it as a tool for elevating ourselves in humanity. I agree with that. I, I had somebody tell me that artificial intelligence is the antichrist and I should never use it. But if, you know, it, it is a technology and if we're going to shy away from it and only let the, the so-called bad guys use this technology, well, that's seems to me it's going to contribute to making the world a, a worse place. Yeah. Yeah. 
For sure. And, and the, the people you're referring to are people that, uh, as a group, I refer to as regressionists, people who are advocating for a return back to some idealized version of the past. Uh, that, that never happens, no matter how much people might want that. I, I think there are certain universal principles that are timeless. Mm-hmm. around higher love and wisdom and, and things along those lines. In theology, it's called the perennial philosophy or perennial wisdom that need to be brought forward, but that doesn't mean going backward. And the idea that we're going to suddenly magically discard technology is delusional. We're not going to discard it. The question is, are we going to, from a higher consciousness, remain the boss of the technology, or are we going to let the technology become the boss of us? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And to be fair, there are a lot of people who make fair criticisms of artificial intelligence about its dangers. And if you look at it, especially through the context of warfare, and again, the fifth generation warfare that we're in with information attacking our cognitive processes, there are definitely some legitimate criticisms. But again, that goes back to this idea. It, it if we are not using it, if we don't understand it, and if we just want to say, oh, we should just rid this from the planet, you know, it's still not addressing the fact that militaries all over the world are using this and have been for much longer than, than ChatGPT. People saw ChatGPT and thought, wow, this new AI technology is here. It's like, yeah, for you, but not the military. This has been around for quite some time. In fact, the term for it in the military is PSYOPs, psychological operations. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very powerful and it can be used I, in uh, a previous episode. I demonstrated how it can be used to create propaganda. I, I okay. uh, as a prompt en- engineer, I'm sure, you know, you give it a role. So you say, all right, today you are Edward Bernays. I want you to think like Edward Bernays. I want you to help me create a propaganda campaign to, I don't know, everyone should dye their hair blue. Just to pick a silly example that's, you know, you can see clearly. And it just, in a second, generated a whole propaganda campaign. Let's think about the emotions involved and what it takes for someone to dye their hair at all in the first place. And what are the marketing tactics that we can use, the slogans, the influencers, all these pieces that we're going to put together. It really can be used as a, the most, probably the most powerful tool in history to manufacture consent. And that that's just one side of it is to generate some kind of propaganda campaign. But even more nefariously, if somebody's using it as if they were using Google and they didn't have a scrutinizing mind and they're searching for information, they're doing research, they're conversing with uh, the role of the, the chat GPT or the AI, it can very subtly give you information presented in the perfect way to make it seem true and real and perfect when it might actually be propaganda. Exactly. So one of the things that i remember from your tedx talk is fact checking as an antidote i think you put it and i'm bringing this up now because ai has changed that a lot fact checking especially we we just talked about ai as a propaganda tool so given ai and even just how the landscape has changed generally speaking with fact checking has become a uh, maybe a hijacked term. What are your thoughts on fact-checking as an antidote in today's world? Mm-hmm. I love that you're asking because my big regret in hindsight from that TED Talk, I, well, I couldn't have known it back when I did the TED Talk, but 
uh, it was talking about fact-checking as an important way to become more propaganda-proof. The problem is that between when I gave that TED Talk and now when we're recording this interview, fact-checking has gotten hijacked. <laughs> I still believe in the importance of discernment, the, the importance of, uh, of accumulating multiple perspectives on any given issue in order to exert our own informed self-sovereignty about our own per perspectives on those issues. Uh, but uh, the, with the, the hijacking of, of fact-checking through the misuse of artificial intelligence and the misuse of non-artificial intelligence propaganda mechanisms is uh, a huge, huge tragedy because what it's led to is a term that was coined a while back called alternative facts, alternative truth. Oh, good Lord, how's that going to impact people? Well, it's going to impact people in a very specific way. It's going to make some people utterly furious and other people are going to be lulled into what in psychology is referred to as learned helplessness, where they end up believing that nothing they do can make a difference. Nothing negative they do has negative impact. Nothing positive they do has positive impact. So who cares? I'm just going to be a hedonist, do whatever I want. If you don't like it, that's your problem. Hmm. You know, this actually makes me think of, I know earlier we touched on identity and I frequently think about the role of in-group, out-group bias in this uh, arena as well, because part of what makes truth so hard to discern and, and can actually make it even tempting to believe alternative facts. I have the right facts. It's you over there. You have the alternative facts. I think a lot of that uh, I, might be driven by in-group outgroup bias uh, is there yes. do you think any truth to that oh i think there's huge huge truth to it uh the and and it gets really nuanced because there is selective fact providing where i i only provide certain facts that support my position and i conveniently leave out other facts the other another aspect of it is that i distort certain facts to make them more uh, appear more like proof than they actually are uh and so the, all of these these different ways of manipulating or distorting facts leave people incredibly confused you know when i i, I recently uh, as just before a week or two before we recorded this i celebrated my 70th birthday and when I was going through school, public school back in the Middle Ages, <laughs> uh, back in the in the sixties and early seventies, I uh, I was taught that when you are doing learning how to do debate, you're given a premise, you're given a topic to debate on, and one team is going to debate in favor of that premise, and the other team is going to debate against that premise. And then halfway through the debate in debate training, you have to switch roles. And the, the group that was debating for it 
had to debate just as cogently against it. And the group that started off debating against it had to debate just as cogently for it. That ability to see multidimensionally has all but disappeared from the education system, from the media, and therefore from public consciousness. Hmm. So the education system definitely is, is playing a, a major role in that. And that was my experience. I never really felt like critical thinking was celebrated in any way. And I, in fact, it was really trust my authority or you're wrong. Right. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. And that is a prescription for creating a totalitarian society. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to uh, the involvement of the Rockefellers in the American education system. That's, that's a whole separate conversation, but <laughs> yeah, it is as far as, uh, fact checking goes and, and getting the truth. It, I, so I guess we should just trust Snopes, <laughs> right? We should just truck trust Snopes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, just as a, as another bookmark with the Rockefellers, also the hijacking of medicine, not just the hijacking of education. Definitely. I have an episode on that coming up this year, but it takes a, I want to approach it with caution because again, I have a highly skeptical audience, which I love. So I want to make sure I get the facts right on that. And, uh, well, I, I mean, I guess, do you have any thoughts on that topic? On the hijacking of education or medicine? I guess either the Rockefeller's involvement in the hijacking of some of our social systems. Right. Well, first of all, what I, want to say is that the the scion of the family the the uh the grand poobah uh john d rockefeller senior did a lot of the hijacking but some of his children didn't like what he did and they tried to insert higher love and wisdom back into the formula so i don't want to get caught in in treating the Rockefeller family as one entity. They're, they're not one entity, but John D. Rockefeller Sr., yeah, he was a, a real problem. And here's what the problem in medicine boils down to from my perspective, that Rockefeller Sr. did a lot of damage around. Uh, and now we're going back to the 1800s. In the 1800s, there were two perspectives on human health that were being debated. One was the germ theory, basically saying outer invaders are the boss of our health or illness. And the other was called the inner terrain theory, which said that our internal climate made us more or less susceptible to being impacted by those outer germs, those outer critics, <laughs> critters rather, not critics, those outer critters. And the hijacking of medicine really started with the germ theory wiping out the inner terrain theory. Because when, when the germ theory wins, and I don't think it's either or, by the way, I think it's a both and. But when the germ theory wins over the inner terrain theory, then we have to be protected against these horrible outer invaders. And we, 
uh, we have to submit to being isolated and we have to take unproven medications in order to protect ourselves from those outer critters. Uh, and what doesn't get said is the other half of the whole picture, which is there are things we can do to strengthen our own immune system, to be in optimal physiological functioning so that we, uh, we can be more naturally resilient against unfriendly outer critters, outer influences. And so the domination of the germ theory over the inner terrain theory hijacked medicine. Wow. That really helps. Thank you. Because I've heard that, you know, I've seen that said before, uh, germ theory versus terrain theory, but I never really uh, looked into it any further. And so my curiosity is peaked for sure. And I especially appreciate the perspective on the Rockefeller family because, you know, yes, John D. Rockefeller was kind of an asshole. I have a book on eugenics where it openly talks about his involvement in the sterilization of the imbeciles, the defectives and the idiots. And he didn't seem to care about humanity. And I think I even saw a video of him openly calling for, you know, a type of depopulation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not necessarily fair to characterize an, uh, an entire family based on on just that. And yeah, it is something to think about. But I, I do have a question. Oh, you know what? Actually, going back to something you said, we, we talked about Snopes and, and fact checking and that sort of thing. And, yeah. and I, I jokingly said Snopes is the answer, but <laughs> um, it does bring up an interesting point about reading to find the truth when we're reading information and consuming it. Just like we consume food, you know, we might have junk food. There could be junk information but even further reading isn't at least this is how i see it reading isn't necessarily the same as critical thinking critical thinking is kind of the extra step because if we're just reading something without critical thinking in a sense we're kind of just indoctrinating ourselves mm -hmm. is, is that fair to say you think yes very much so there's uh there's a line of thinking that basically talks about a continuum around how we are influenced. And there are some people who are at one end of the continuum that's called impervious to influence. No matter what information comes in, they're going to stick to their preconceptions, right, wrong, or indifferent. They're, they're locked in. And then at the other extreme of that continuum, are people who are indiscriminate sponges. They'll just accept anything that's fed to them as though it's true. And neither of those extremes, being an indiscriminate sponge or impervious to influence, is a healthy attitude. That The, the attitude that I am an advocate of is what I refer to as being an open skeptic. Skeptical in the sense of being discerning and analyzing and chewing on the stuff that I'm learning, the, the information I'm being exposed to, and the openness being that I'm always open to entertaining or chewing on or considering perspectives that 
might be different from the perspectives that I've been holding. And I'm an advocate of that kind of open skepticism mindset. Yeah, I love that. And I think that'll definitely resonate with the audience for sure, because we talk a lot about skepticism, but it's also important to, to have that balance. You don't want to be so skeptical that you're a paranoid maniac. That's not very healthy either. Right. Well, the problem is that it, when we're impervious to influence, we fall under the trap that is one of my best known sound bites. An ego in search of evidence always finds it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's powerful. Well, you know, I, I am a, a board certified health coach and I do preach skepticism, even towards me. I do engage in influence quite a bit. I, really, I'm helping people to influence themselves, I guess you could say. Nice. And I know that you've spoken extensively about leadership. I know you, you, you do a lot of work in, in this area, of course. Any advice for a health coach like myself or, or any of the other many health coaches who listen to the show? Yeah. Um, what I would, what I would suggest is that health coaches are in a position to be some of the most helpful influencers on the planet today, far more helpful than the way that journalism has been hijacked, the way education has been hijacked. Uh, where, uh, where a health coach can do more than only helping people elevate into optimal health. That's sacred and important in and of itself. The opportunity that a health coach has is to layer on top of that a, um, an approach that can help their clients enter into spiritual self-sovereignty so that they're not simply in a state of optimal physical health, but where they are in a state of optimal societal health. The health of society. The health of their own self-sovereignty in helping society become healthy. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Sorry to pause. I, it's just really got me thinking. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, anything else that we have not yet talked about today that might be important to discuss? Oh. <laughs> Tons of stuff. We've bookmarked <laughs> a bunch of juicy things. Uh, and I, I also think that we've really chewed on and discussed uh, a really hefty amount of territory that's going to take the uh, listeners and viewers of your episode here some time to really contemplate. So I don't want to overload them. Yeah, that's a good point because I was just thinking like, I'm going to have to go back and, and listen to this one. There's just been uh, so much valuable things shared here and I appreciate your time. So Dr. David Gruder, where can people find out more about you and your work and what you do? Mm. Well, probably the same the single easiest place to learn about the entire range of what I'm doing is my hub website, which is drgruder.com. That's D-R-G-R-U-D-E-R.com. Perfect. Well, Doc, thanks again so much. This has really been such a fascinating conversation. I'm going to be thinking about some of this stuff at least all day, probably beyond that. So I really appreciate your time. 
Well, I really appreciate you having me on your show and I love what you're doing. And I love the kind of influencing that you are role modeling to your audience. Thank you so much.